This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? 9.37 a.m. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Mark Tan. This is, of course, WTF, or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories and other news tidbits that you may have missed over the course of the week. And let's just jump right into what those big stories are, yeah? We are turning to the acronym of BRICS, or BRICS, the grouping of Brazil. Russia, India, China and South Africa form that very catchy acronym but this is set to change following the BRICS summit this week. So BRICS has agreed to six new full members to the bloc and they will be joining on 1st January 2024 and the six countries are Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Now, notable are the two heavyweights, which are the key oil exporters of Saudi Arabia and UAE, with their deep pockets joining this block. Egypt is also another interesting one because, you know, it naturally controls the Suez Canal. And Iran is important to Moscow as it could help create a north-south corridor to allow them to export grain and oil through the Persian Gulf without by- bypassing the current contentious Black Sea or Northern Europe. Now, more than 20 countries have formally applied to join BRICS, including Indonesia, but these were the first six that were selected and inducted into the block. In my mind, I'm wondering how did they select these six countries? I mean, is it geography? Is it based on the size of your economy? That doesn't seem to be very clear, transparent indicators to how you accept someone into the block, isn't it? That's that's the central concern I have. I think it's interesting to maybe look back into how this block was actually formed. And ironically, mm. I mean, they have Goldman Sachs to thank because yes. the chief economist back then, Jim O'Neill, he invented that acronym and that economic grouping. Um, and following that, it became sort of a more formal uh, grouping as it is today with all the countries now wanting to join that. The irony of it that actually it was, uh, you know, coined from the temple of capitalism that now actually wants to dethrone this temple of capitalism (laughs) itself. So the baby actually wants to slaughter the father in this whole process. But you can't call it BRICS anymore simply because you've got a lot more countries. So what's the new acronym? I know that you've been really just, you know, putting your mind to this, Phil. So tell us, what have you come up with? It's been really hard, but I only think it can be I ace bruises. Where does the U come? Oh, UAE. Yeah. <laughs> UAE is an acronym by itself. How I know, are you going to exactly. weave that it in? It's really hard. I mean, but again, I don't think you want to call yourselves IA's bruises as well in the process. Honestly, I just go with BRICS plus. I think the plus encapsulates anything no. else that could come after that. Well, uh, then you feel secondary, isn't it? Like there's a tier <laughs> one and tier two. It's like BRICS is the tier one and then tier two countries. Do you think they want to be part tier two? Charles, well, do you want to be tier two? The thing is, I don't think we really know what BRICS is. <laughs> is for. They've got this overarching Absolutely. sort of aim to be an alternative to what the global geopolitical order is, but whether they actually have enough cohesion among them to push that agenda through, I think that's what some some people are questioning. Correct. And part of the agenda they've been trying to work on in Johannesburg was the whole dollar debate and, you know, calling for members within the bloc to increase bilateral trade in their own currencies rather than using the US dollar and look at alternative financial arrangements and alternative payment systems. Now, of course, this sounds very much like a China-Russian agenda trying to push across, you know, this emerging market bloc. Now, interestingly enough, the US Secretary General Antonio Guterres was also there and he did admit that, you know, in terms of the global multilateral architecture, 
there need to be some reforms, especially with the United Nations Security Council and Bretton Woods institutions that will form all the way back post-World War II. But do you think that's why they have breaks? Because there has been not enough reform in the United Nations. That's why they are frustrated with that. I mean, this you know, this creation of these separate, distinct, multilateral frameworks sometimes is a reflection or failure of the existing institutions that are in place. So I think for me, that's worth thinking about when we try to set up all these new issues, right, rather than try and you know, set up new functions instead of trying to sort out the root cause of the problem. I mean, but it's also worth noting that China and Russia are part of the UN Security Council. Yes. They are part of the current makeup and how much, you know, they may say they want reform, but how much reform do they really <laughs> want? Given the fact also that Russia True. is in the midst of a conflict that has been mm-hmm. very much isolated from the rest of the world. I mean, Honestly, I'm not sure how much leverage they have at this point. But yeah. this is going to be an interesting geopolitical trend to watch, definitely, for the months and years to come. And we'll be keeping an eye on that. But let's to cast our eyes closer to home and really to North and East Asia. If we look back about 12 years ago, the March 11th earthquake that rocked Japan, we're continuing to see the reverberations of that today, particularly with regard to the Fukushima nuclear power plant that was permanently disabled after the disaster. So for the past decade, water has been pumped into the plant to cool down the nuclear reactor, and this has resulted in a buildup of contaminated wastewater. Beginning this week, Japan has begun releasing the treated wastewater into the Pacific Ocean, and this has sparked outrage in North and East Asia over environmental and food safety concerns. Correct. So over the next 17 days, you know, Japan is releasing the first batch of 2,800 tons of treated water. Now, this is part of a 30-year plan to release 1.34 million tons. And the company running Fukushima will has a phase one plan to release 31,200 tons right, starting today or yesterday all the way up to March 2024. I mean, the reverberations are being felt all the way back home to Malaysia, in Malaysia as well. As you saw, right, in China, it's announced an immediate blanket ban on all seafood imports from Japan after the Japanese government released that water. China and Hong Kong are Japan's two largest export markets, accounting for 40, 42% of all its Exports And back home in Malaysia, uh, our DG of Health, Dr. Mohamed Razi bin Abu Hassan, said the Ministry of Health will impose a level 4 surveillance inspection at the country's entry points on high-risk food products imported from Japan. There's been a lot of conversation about whether you should have sushi this weekend. I mean, honestly, <laughs> that's that that's in the mind, right? And to be fair, I was just telling you, this my, it was my birthday weekend, and so I was planning to have lunch at the sushi restaurant and some of my family members actually said to me should we go and have lunch there because of this Fukushima water uh, issues although we must be clear right it is according to health experts safe but the criticism is that there hasn't been enough research done still I think everybody's just trying to err on the side of safety, right? So if you had a choice between having sashimi from the Pacific Ocean versus getting a sashimi from the Atlantic Ocean or even from New Zealand, Australia, I suppose, you know, you kind of know which country to go to. We had many debates. Like one of my family members said, oh, well, the salmon is from Norway, so we should be fine. <laughs> so, so, you know, that was the kind of conversations that took place in my household. I wonder if that's being felt elsewhere, right? Whether or not people are having second thoughts and the implications that will have, you know, for especially many Japanese restaurants here that will be affected by that. So it's also interesting to look at the geopolitical landscape of things because China has come out vociferously against this uh, release of water by Japan, but also relations between Japan and China haven't been on great footing for quite a while. And if you contrast it with South Korea, South Korea and Japan used to be definitely more 
antagonistic with yeah. each other, but of late they're starting to come together, especially with the U.S. as a counterpoint to China, which is why from the South Korean government, perhaps you don't see as strident uh, criticisms mm. of this policy, although the people themselves there are very concerned about the implications to them. And I think this also, you know, got me thinking about our renewable energy transition. You know, many people had, you know, hoped that nuclear energy was one of the key solutions for us to decarbonize our energy value chain. But with this, you know, publicity around this water, you know, emitting out to the ocean, I think people are going to have second thoughts about whether nuclear is going to be one of those viable technologies then. I think when it comes to nuclear, it's really just... Fact and fear, you know, fear wins out. Yeah. The facts just don't resonate enough with people to have confidence uh, that nuclear energy is the way to go. And that's just something that uh, this type of energy is going to have to grapple with. Yes. It's something you don't have that big a problem in Europe. And I wonder if it's a function also of, you know, your history, right? I mean, we have that Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atomic bombs there, whether that's all still colouring our perception and all that of nuclear energy as well. Different regions, different mm. viewpoints, just different trends and how that's they see right. things, right? So something to keep in mind, keep watching as this, these things unfold. It's 9.46am. We're going to head into some messages, but we'll come back with more recaps from the week. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. 9.48 a.m. You're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana, Phil and Mark. This is WTF or What's the Focus? Our weekly recap show at the end of the week to ensure that you head off into the weekend well-versed, full of knowledge, lots of fun facts to share with Slightly smarter. the people that you meet. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Let's turn to the next story that has really dominated the headlines this week and it's all about space. India celebrated a milestone not just for its own national space ambitions, but also in terms of global achievements when it successfully landed in the South Pole of the Moon this week. So Chandrayaan, meaning Mooncraft in Sanskrit, India became the first nation to touch down near the little explored South Pole after a previous Indian effort failed back in 2019. Now the Indian success comes days after Russia's first moon mission in almost 50 years crash landed. I mean, congratulations to India, I think, for really pulling off. Well done to them. Um, it is actually very important to emphasise that you know, this is really very few explorations or countries are able to land on the moon. But what was very stark, you know, in the news on a lighter note, right? It's also framed as a low-cost operations. <laughs> and what happened was, you know, an Indian press is so proud of it, right? That actually the whole deployment of Chandrayaan-3 costed $75 million in budget. And then they contrasted it with Interstellar, Christopher Nolan's blockbuster <laughs> film that basically was... You know, costed at $165 million. So Chandrayaan was half the cost of Christopher Nolan's Interstellar movie, and it actually delivered much more impact, <laughs> tangible impact, than Interstellar himself. That's quite cheeky. Not exactly <laughs> apples to apples, but okay. I mean, point to Indian press for coming up with that comparison. Yes. Um, but I think this is a, a, a feat that is going to reverberate for India and yes. also for its economy. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the space explorations of the US and of Russia back in the 60s, I think it really did um, create a lot of inspiration. It created this whole mm. industry um, 
revolving around space and space exploration. Uh, perhaps India is also on the cusp of that, um, and we could see uh, the reverberations of that. Now, China also has its plans for a lunar mission, expected to take place before 2030, and it's part of their ambition to set up a lunar research station. So in 2013, China successfully landed a rover on the moon, becoming only the third country to do so. But, you know, besides China, India, Russia, and the US, there's also talks that potentially South Korea, Japan, and United Arab Emirates also has plans for the moon. I think I think everybody's you know just has seen that race to the space since space here on Earth is getting increasingly congested over a period of time. The geopolitics of this is actually fascinating for me because you just remember on the back of it we saw Russia's uh, explosion that didn't work out that that failed moon mission about just less than a week before Chandrayaan's successful uh, uh, launch. So I guess. You know, what does this really mean also for the Russian psyche, right? That they can't uh, deliver this mm. successfully, considering that this is the second time they lost fundamentally, right? In terms of the US beating them in landing to the moon mm. and also with this, right? And I wonder with now China into the picture, how does China feel in this whole process, right? India actually beat them to the game as well. So a part of me is actually kind of chuffed that we have new entrants into the space yeah. industry or the space race. I mean, the fact that India is coming into play and you mentioned uh, Japan, South Korea, Mark. I mean, for the longest time, it's really just been dominated by the US and perhaps by Russia. So I, I'm glad to see that maybe there's a democratizing of space exploration. But at the same time, it, it's also concerning because, again, it's going to be limited to just those countries that have the budgets and have the resources mm. to actually go into this. Um, the rest of us uh, will not. And, mm. and really, we shouldn't. Like, I don't think Malaysia needs to spend billions of ringgit to go mm. into space. Right now, there are other pressing concerns for us. But uh, in, over the longer term, I think these poses questions for what exactly countries want to do and achieve. So you mentioned in terms of the country's budget. So obviously, the United States is still the biggest elephant in the room. So their space budget is by far the largest on Earth, you know, at 62 billion US dollars. Now, this is followed by China at 12 billion. And surprisingly, in third place is the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. They have a 5 billion budget for their space program. So I think it's okay for governments is it okay for governments to do this but the next question is is it okay for corporates to get involved and perhaps we have less of an issue right if corporates get involved it's their risk it's their budgets it's their money it's how they want to spend it fundamentally you have Elon Musk you've got Jeff Bezos you've got Richard Branson all doing all with varying degrees of success and failure as well right perhaps they can you know roll with the punches and have some intergalactic tourism per se but I think the bigger central question you have is the equality you create right when all these big superpowers try and fight for space, for geography outside planet Earth. The idealist in me wishes that space could be a unifying factor like sport is maybe, you know, if all of us can just combine our forces and we can all explore the universe together because if Earth fails, it's going to affect all of us. But that is pretty much, pretty yeah. much my, you know, pie in the sky. But uh, all right, from unifying things, let's turn to uh, the local front and maybe we can talk a little bit about the discussion over the week regarding our Merdeka Day and national unity questions about that, right? Because I think when the uh, unity government, the federal government, uh, issued their theme and also logo for the National Day celebration, it did come across some backlash or some pushback from opposition parties. And I think the point should be, you know, regardless of anybody's race, religion, culture or political leanings, you know, Merdeka Day should be a reason for us to come together. Now, you mentioned sports earlier, and I remember, you know, as a young kid, you know, we will all get behind our badminton team when it's the Thomas Cup and we'll cheer them on. So we should kind of have the same feeling for Medica Day as well, you know, whether it's to go for the National Day Parade, but wave our flags, you know, and be united for at least that one single day in a year. 
So a part of me wonders also the focus on themes and stuff. How important is a Merdeka theme as opposed to just the feeling of Merdeka and unity? You know, a part of me thinks that yeah. I don't remember any of the Merdeka themes from the past how many odd years I've been alive. So mm-hmm. in a way, yeah, has it the been c- overblown, the importance of that Yeah, thing? the cynic in me is a bit more, you know, passe about these things. I mean, we did kind of make fun of the current logo, right? Because it had that Wi-Fi feel to it, if you remember. <laughs> the current logo is Kalawaga Malaysia Tago Besama. That was last year. Oh, last this year. is the new one. Now, oh, now it's all so about Madani. Exactly. Time. See, that's the thing, you right? You can't even yeah, keep track of what themes and logos are in, are in place but anymore. But if it's Madani, that's, I think, the bigger central question, right? Because because when the government, of course, then begins to politicize something like Madani, no wonder state governments also don't like it, right? And that's why they tend to do that. So there's always this tension between when state governments start to do their own because they feel like when a government starts to politicize a program, then it becomes a challenge, isn't it? I think that's a very fair point. It's, it, is on, uh, it is on, how to say, an onus incumbent Both. on the federal government to be fair yeah. <laughs> and to not politicize things when they are in charge of setting those themes. But, and I have to say, uh, to the credit of the opposition, so the proposal for an alternative logo and theme came from Perikata National Youth, right? They came up with this proposal, Mm -hmm. this logo, this theme. Hey, let's do this instead. Maybe the other states, the six states that are under the opposition, they want to take this up. Um, So it was never really a PN uh, proposal per se. It was from PN Youth. And we have seen how states like Trunganu and Kedah have both said, nah, we're just going to stick with the federal theme. It's fine. So, you know, I think yeah, there's yeah. also a bit of framing there and where this is coming from. from. So, Shaz, let me ask you, right? What do you think is the most patriotic thing you would do for this Merdeka? Where Batek? Where Batek? Uh, perhaps, yeah. I was more thinking of waving a flag around. I, I, fi- I feel that's really patriotic. There you was, could put one and attach it to an, on your car, car bonnet. Uh, remember there was a time, uh, like yes. what, 10 years ago, when putting <laughs> flags on the car was the thing? Uh, I haven't seen that so much in recent years. Uh, that hasn't really been um, a trend. But I did see a very cute, um, I think it's an attachment to the car door yes. where it looks like you, you have a label of Malaysia, which I think maybe I will partake this year on that if I can find it on shop. Or Lazada. Yes, but I think I'll wear some batik, I think, because there's also been some recent policy, right, by government officials that you can actually start wearing batik all throughout your working day. In the past, it was Batik Thursday, if I'm not wrong. It still is Batik Thursday. So, but it's not Batik every day. <laughs> I think oh, in the past, it was uh, Batik Thursday. Then it was just Batik is encouraged on Thursday. And now it's back to Batik is mandatory on Thursday. But, you know, feel free to wear it any time of the week as well. And I think that has caused uh, some interesting reactions from people both who support it and who are not so keen on it. I think I like my Batik shirts. The only problem I had is when I was in my 20s and I wore those Batik shirts, everybody Everybody say, oh my God, you look like an old man wearing that batik shirt. But now that I'm old oh, and I wear that batik shirt, I think it's in matches. It matches <laughs> my think, age right now. I think your age has caught up with your fashion. That's fundamentally <laughs> what that's what's happened here, right? I do agree with you, right? When I was when I look at my dad wearing his batik shirts, it's those very loose fitting, mm. uh, flowy kind of dresses. Felt a bit like pajama-ish kind of things. But they have evolved <laughs> tremendously, right? The batik. They've actually had really contemporary designs. So actually it's become a style stylistic over although to be fair Shani will always say I have no style so I'm not going <laughs> to pass any judgement on but my but the one thing I really do like about Batik it's very cooling you know it never feels warm you know so you know it's, it's perfect for a tropical weather to, to go around with it rather mm-hmm. than wearing a three-piece suit and your tie you know going to an office function because we always wear three-piece suits in the studio mm-hmm. 
Of course we do. But yeah, I think, I know we don't like to compare uh, our bate to Indonesian bate, but I do think we can afford to take a leaf from how Indonesia has really marketed yes. its bate because they have made bate pieces that are very wearable, uh, lots of different designs, not just limited to that one single uh, silhouette that we often see here, perhaps for our bate uh, fashion. So I think if we can be more creative in it, yes, there's every avenue for bate to be uh, more picked up as a uh, outfit that we wear day to day. And you're right, I've actually seen some uh, Indonesian golf brands where the golf shirt actually is batik prints. So you're right, you know. There we go. Let's see if this invigorates the batik industry. We are coming to the uh, top of the hour, though. We do have a quick message for you. Our kidneys are vital organs that help to filter waste from our blood while maintaining the right balance of fluids in our body. But that function could be impaired by diseases like cancer. With most cases of kidney cancer being diagnosed late, what can be done to improve diagnosis? And how have the advances in keyhole surgery improved outcome for patients? Find out from Dr. J.R. Satyanandan, consultant urologist from Pantai Hospital KL on Monday, the 28th of August at 4pm. That is all from the morning run on WTF. Stay tuned for the 10am News Bulletin up next, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.